Welcome to the ACL conference. You've, you. you've just spoken to uh, sorry, you've just spoken to uh, near a thousand people in the auditorium who were thrilled to hear you and hear um, lots of different stories. And we're going to have a little bit more insight into you today. So thanks for joining me here today. Look, an absolute pleasure. A story is look the most powerful thing that we have got um, a story can change a child's life a story can change the world and I know that because it happened um, back in 2013 I was at the Sydney Writers Conference and late at night in one of those things you never expect my husband started to choke and we ended up in an ambulance going to St Vincent Hospital. There weren't any spare beds, so the doctor started to treat him in the waiting area because he was, it was very hard to breathe. And there was a boy there um, in a hoodie, um, so dirty, you really couldn't tell what colour his skin was. And he came up and he said, have you got any spare change? And I thought, okay, I, I know where this is going. It's going straight into your arm. But I didn't have much, so I gave him what I had, apart from what I might need as a taxi if we were able to get back to the hotel. He didn't go outside. He went to a food vending machine. He chose a packet of chips and then a sandwich. He gulped the sandwich fast. He was starving. And then he ate the chips slowly, savouring every single one. Two social workers arrived and they said, look, we're sorry, we've been trying for two hours to get you a bed, there aren't any. And he said, please, please don't send me out, please don't send me out of the night, please, I'm scared, please don't send me out of the night. And they said, we're sorry, there's nothing we can do. They walked away. I ran after them. I said, look, he can come back to the hotel with us, I'll pay anything. And they said, it is not as simple as that. It has to be an approved house and person. And possibly they were right. They said, you can't just throw money at it. Possibly they were right. But at that moment, the doctor came out and said that a bed had become available and the surgeon had arrived. And the boy who had no bed cheered for us he put his hands in the air and he cheered for us because my husband had got a bed and I could not find him when we left I spent three weeks basically crying on and off till my extraordinary nephew who works with the homeless told me to stop being so bloody self-indulgent and stop crying for what I couldn't do and focus on what I could do instead and a few weeks after that, they called me and asked me about the laureateship. And I hadn't realised that the laureateship does not end. Once you start with the advocacy for the right of every child to read, um, you don't stop. Because I realised, yes, I wanted to give that boy a bed and food and care. But also because when I was 15 and homeless, my extraordinary teacher gave me books. And it was because of that that I survived. Without those books, I wouldn't. Every Monday, she brought me in this 
pile of books and they they saved my life literally um they gave me hope first of all of course it was just that that confidence that I was worth getting books it was the ideas and the books it was the confidence that all I needed to do was get a scholarship to university and I would I would have enough money well to eat with a part-time job um, women didn't get paid very much back then but it was it was the ideas in those books the concept that somewhere around the corner life can be good and that's what I wanted to give that boy. I wanted to give him books. Um, a book can save a child's life and it saved mine. I only found out actually a few years ago, I'd always thought the books were he hers or her husband's, that I actually found out she was going and buying the books that she thought I needed at the time. And she was absolutely spot on the books she was giving me were exactly the books that I needed. As I said, a book can save a child's life, a book can change the world. So can we take a step back though? You can we take a step back though? You you just said that this teacher has had enormous impact on you and as I've sat next to you um, and watched you do many book signings here at the ACL conference person after person they couldn't hear each other but they were all talking about how your books had and it gives me goosebumps just saying it after that story how your books have given them something else something more and even hearing you read and speak and share knowledge and wisdom through words and words that you've read and stories that you've heard or and you've you said that in all of your books that um that there is something real that is in there they're not just made up completely that you know there's there's an essence to to the the authenticity of the story but I want to take a step back so you said you're 15 and and the teacher this teacher was giving you books but you also shared with me earlier that and you've talked a lot about being dyslexic and so as a 15 year old was school difficult for you and so I, I'm trying to to work this out and share with everybody here um, can you just talk a little bit more about the 15-year-old you and go back and, and talk us through that too? Okay, look, at 15, um, the only class that was difficult was my maths class. Um, my maths teacher hated me, um, partly, I think, because being dyslexic, I transposed things and she thought it was carelessness, that I could do complicated problems but not simple arithmetic. Mm -hmm. However, I found out from a friend a year ago that she hated all of us. It wasn't personal, oh. so that was all right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, from the Sorry, same, no, no, it, was, it wasn't personal no. at all. She hated all of us. Um, um, my friend is now a psychiatrist and think it was probably menopause. But anyway, right. um, <laughs> but the teacher who gave me books also told me another story of the first essay that I had given her right. in year 11. And um, it was just this badly spelt scrawl, incredible, illegible scrawl. And she put it aside, just assuming that this was a... An illiterate kid. And then she said she felt guilty 
and thought that okay I'd better try and read it and she finally managed to read it and then she called her husband and said look this is this is incredible this is extraordinary you have to read it you have to read it and he was a linguist who spoke speaks many languages Mm -hmm. and so he took it and he read it for about 20 minutes then finally said um what language is she writing in now I've since heard the same from several of my teachers I had absolutely no idea quite how much work I was. Um, I do remember my year one teacher, Miss Davies. Um, my first few years, my first four years of life, um, I was looked after by my great-grandmother, which is probably how I survived. And my mother, motherhood is not one of my mother's talents. And... Certainly by that age, I could read, but it was speed reading. I still remember in year one, the headmistress and teacher, um, I'd illegally snuck into the library and was reading Black Beauty, frantically leaving over to find out what happened to the horse. And they were trying to work out how this kid who couldn't read Run, Spot, Run could speed read a book. I don't know how I read, but I do know that... Look, Miss Davies, I think it was her first year of teaching. You only needed two years of teacher's college at that stage um, to teach the kids. These mob of, I think I was about one of two kids in the class who wore shoes. Um, She taught us all to read and write. And in retrospect, she just went to this extraordinary trouble to teach me to write. Reading was fine. Writing, I still find very difficult when I'm tired. My writing still is a straight line. And when I'm very tired, I cannot write. Um, but I can but I can read. And don't ask me the specifics of that because I'm the wrong person to ask how I can read. But at any time I can read. But there are times when I can't. I can't write. I can always type, mm. um, but my the the signal in my brain to my hand won't work. But I can always, always type. Thank goodness for computers. But going through school, um, the number of people in the years even before dyslexia was known, who must have realised that there was a problem, but wasn't daydreaming mm. and. As I said, it's only now I'm realising what they did. My terror in year 12 and what really could have made a problem. Um, to get to university then, you had to do a language. Now, I knew I was fine in everything else. I had to get a scholarship or I could never have got to university. Um, but in German, um, they took a half mark off for every spelling mistake. And I knew there was no way I was going to make fewer than 100 mistakes in a two-hour exam. It just wasn't going to happen. I was going to fail. And if I failed, no university, no scholarship. But 40% was for an oral exam. And I turned up at the oral. And um, the first question, what did you have for breakfast? And I said an apple. I didn't say it was an apple, which I found in the gutter and was bruised because um, I didn't have enough money for food. Um, and he said, oh, just an apple? And I said, oh, yes, I'm too fat. And he said, oh, no, no, you, you, I'm a dubis schön. <laughs> um, and it, it broke the ice. He stopped... Um, 
the next question was what do you want to study at university? We'd been told to say I want to study German. Mm -hmm. um, but look, um, I said, look, I don't want to study German. My, um, my German is terrible. Um, 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 he said, why, why did you study? I said, I, I wanted to read, I want to study philosophy. I wanted to read uh, Nietzsche, I wanted to read Goethe in German, um, in, in the language, um, but it would never be good enough to actually study German. But I deeply want to study psychology. I want to study German. And, um, and I explained about my spelling, etc., all in probably very, very pidgin German. And we spoke for probably about half an hour. And I discovered afterwards that one person in the school had been given 100% for their oral and I'm pretty sure it was me. Now I did not deserve 100% but that 40% meant that however badly I did on the exam and I'm pretty sure it was very very badly. I would, I would have passed mm. and you only needed, you could get rid of your worst subject and you were just judged on, on the other subject. So, so I got a scholarship. So all the way through, it's just been the extraordinary generosity of teachers. Having this kid who was basically in my early years, this very grubby, uncivilized, little neglected child, um, with major, major neglect and abuse, um, who just went to the most extraordinary trouble to give me a magnificent education. And in fact, I did have a magnificent education with these teachers who, when they saw I'd gobbled up the syllabus, mm. kept giving me more and more and more and for me um, if you started to ask me about the teachers I owe my life to we would be here for for about three hours except for the maths teacher <laughs> thanks can I ask you um, you a lot of people were talking about their own children and a lot of people as they were coming up and and I guess this is a bit of a twofold question but um, one what advice would you give teachers who have students in their class that are, um, or students in their school that are not fitting that mould? I guess that you know it's, the compliance aspect is not there, but it's not their fault that you know that the compliance it, it could be some type of um, learning uh, issue, a particular disability, whatever that may be, diagnosed, undiagnosed. But you know, you talked about the ability to be able to do things, but then some of the simpler things that you couldn't do well. Um, the handwriting was messy. If you got tired, you know, there were issues there because the literacy element was, was difficult. So as an advocate, uh, a laureate in the area for, for literacy, for reading, for teaching and education, what advice would you give? But I'm also particularly fascinated in um, your extraordinary ability to be able to, I was talking about my own children in their age groups and uh, also uh, people were coming up and talking about their children. So one, could you talk through what teachers can do for when they, you know, and of course getting to know students, but what can they do? What would you suggest? But also, can you go through even a bit of an age, can you go through a bit of an age th um, story with us of what books you would recommend for those reluctant readers the whole way through as well? Because I think that that insight would be invaluable. 
Not a small question. No. Okay. <laughs> Talk too much. Okay. Um, now for any child who has got a problem, um, first of all, find out what the problem is. Mm-hmm. Um, get a specialist to actually diagnose the problem, whether it's psychological, whether they've got a learning difficulty, etc. Ten years ago, we didn't know what works. Now we do. So... We also know that things like reading recovery actually make the problem worse, not better. So first of all, find out what the problem is. And of course, it might just simply be psychological. If a child may simply be wanting attention, and if they want attention, then give it to them, but give them the attention out of the classroom so they stop disrupting everyone else to get it Um, sometimes they simply actually can't communicate Um, I remember one child who actually um, was just shrieking over and over and over Um, he couldn't speak and um, just going over to him and finding out what he was doing was actually trying to show approval and he just simply talking to him about other ways of doing it that instead of the rules which were disrupting everyone else to actually just do um, there's there's no hard and fast rule for for what kids need and also there's no hard and fast rule about what books will appeal to kids um, a few weeks ago I was asked to speak to a group of kids who theoretically were unable to read and right. Um, the little boy who was taking me over there again, um, who was about 12, supposed to be able to not read and write anything, he was explaining to me, we're going to the library, he said, oh yeah, God, it's really boring, the library, there's nothing any good in it. I said, oh, well, what do you like? He said, oh, look, my dad's in third year electrical engineering, and, oh, I love his textbooks, but they're really expensive, you know, they cost they cost 70 to $120 each, but it's my birthday next week, and he's going to get me a textbook of my very own, that's for the honours one, but it's going to be mine. This kid was reading and studying at third year university electrical engineering level. Of course he was finding school boring. He thought it was actually just kid stuff. He wasn't even going to bother. He ended up writing the most wonderful piece. In fact, every kid there ended up writing at least two and a half pages. Um, One, oh, this is Um, This is actually a few weeks ago. I got an email saying, your book is trash. Um, Opened up. We had to read your book, Tom Appleby, and it's absolute trash. I don't know why you read this trash. It is torture for kids. I could be doing something useful like watching watching TV, um, like Netflix. Um, Your book really is trash. You should be ashamed. Love. Um, Let's leave the name off. Anyway, I emailed back and said, look... um, don't judge your books by mine, um, etc., etc. Suggest a few others that he'd like, and then he came back and um, and see if your teacher will get you read that. And that came back. No, she won't. So okay, I said, um, well, look, um, then try explaining why you think it's trash. And he said, look, it's trash because I've got to write 500 words on Tom Appleby's father, and he's only in two pages, and he dies right at the beginning, and no one can do it. Right, so I wrote back and said, oh, but look, how about you go beyond the book? What did his father feel like when Tom was born? Or what did 
his ghost feel like maybe when he saw what happened to Tom afterwards in the convict ships and then emailed back still with the heading your book is trash hey yeah that'd be great his ghost yeah oh great anyway next next email um I've written 500 words um next email um I've written I've written I've written nearly 2,000 words next email I've I've written more than 6,000 words now hey hey this is hey this is really re- really excellent um and then 10 minutes later still with the heading your book is trash thank you and that's the last I ever heard of him um this kid just writing thousands and thousands he just got completely carried away and all he'd needed was 30 seconds of attention to actually explain how to do this thing um that he was obviously finding so desperately incredibly um terrifying but of course being all macho and what have you he couldn't admit that he didn't know how to do it so he was saying the book was trash instead teaching from the other side of the uh oh sorry you're actually teaching from the other side of the computer, essentially. So yes, when kids yes. are writing to you, you're actually, because you've talked a lot about different students writing to you at different times. Yes, um, but what I've also been doing since 2014, I've been asking all the adults in the room to shut their eyes and then ask kids who think books are boring. And in all but six places, more than 80% of the kids have put their hands up. And we are talking about some of the most expensive schools in the country, though admittedly two of those were among the six where they didn't. Um, one where they didn't was the Bar and Bay Writers Festival, where I actually thought I was going to be lynched by um, <laughs> by suggesting books were boring. But it has been amazing. The At least 80% think books are boring, and they are right. Um, I find most books boring. I don't like books about the sex life of cricketers. I don't like books about politicians unless they're dead. Um, I don't like books where a hero saves the world by murdering 3,000 people with a Kalashnikov and he's still a hero. I don't like books about zombies. There's a whole range of books I don't like. We need to give kids permission to actually hate books. And so I make a bet with every kid who's put their hand up. I will send them either $5 or a packet of very good chocolate frogs if either their librarian, their teacher, or as a last resort myself can't find them a book they love so much they can't stop reading. And I get a heck of a lot of emails. I have not paid out $5 or a packet of chocolate frogs yet, even with the boys that I overhear pretending to be um, 10 kids so they'll get $50. In every case these kids have still decided they love the book so much they just want more suggestions but you need to find out what the kids love Um, there's no such thing as a book that every child will love they need to find that magic book the book that actually turns them into a reader and that's where a teacher librarian is magnificent um they they're the magicians they're the specialists they know not just what books are available but what sort of things are going to interest this child and that is a very very specialist skill and quite often even though i do find magic books for the kids i don't do it myself i then on social media um to say help this kid likes x y and z can anyone suggest what it is and you get all sorts of suggestions and invariably from teacher librarians across the country Mm. but there are also other things that you can do too um 
saying, okay, who's got to clean their room this weekend? Um, who wants to clean their room? There's always a couple of goody-goodies and put their hands up. Um, who would love to clean their room if someone would read them their favourite book while you do it? Every hand is waving wildly in the air. Kids love being read to. Because when I also ask who thinks books are boring, then I ask who watched TV or a movie last night? Every hand goes up. Who was bored? More hands go up than with the books. We think, and then I say, look, why why did you watch? Oh, well, maybe, maybe, maybe something better was going to come on. They're bored. Mm. They're really bored. But they're not given an alternative. Um, if you say to your kid, okay, I'll read whatever you like. Um, too often when kids have got reading problems, we try to duplicate the TV experience. Oh, kids love TV, therefore they're going to want a short, funny book. Mm. If you think about the books you loved as a child, um, in fact, I've done this by actually asking famous people the books they loved as a child, they are invariably good, big books. Um, um, asking Kim Beasley, it was the guy in The Witch and the Wardrobe, he saw himself as Asgand. Um, asking John Howard the books that he loved as a child, and he said Biggles. And I got off the phone and I said to my husband, Biggles, we have a Prime Minister who loved Biggles. And my husband said in a small voice, Biggles were my favourite books. <laughs> I'm married to a Biggles lover. Biggles. But again, Biggles are good, big books. And Biggles did good. And you can really see, um, everyone talks about these really big, fat books they love. They don't talk about the short, funny ones. And so often we are trying to duplicate the superficial, facile experience of a cartoon um, in a book. And yes, of course, kids find this funny, but it doesn't turn them into a reader. What they need are the complex books, but often they don't have the skills to read it. So if you take a complex book and you read it, and you, if you say, okay, clean your room and I will read any book you want, the kid will probably come with a large book they think they will love, but they don't have the confidence to read. And then you stop at the most exciting point, and you'll probably find they realize if they can read a paragraph, they can read a page. If they can read a page, they can read 140,000 words. The other one that I try is, um, okay, if someone will cook you your favorite meal tonight, would you read their choice of story while they cooked and every hand waves wildly in the air and then they race off to the library to look up recipe books to make sure it's not going to have eggplant or sesame seeds or something they hate in it um and look it works they will clean up their room if they get their favorite book they will read your favorite book or at least choice of book if you make their favorite dinner um kids are intimidated by books or with all the best intentions they're given books they find boring and as i said i find most books boring but luckily there are millions of books in the world which gives me at least enough for one book a day because i've got a book a day habit oh that's lovely 
thanks, Jackie. I um, I said to you when I first saw you again today that um, about 20 years ago when I was teaching a Year 1 class in Canberra, uh, you came in and spoke to my Year 1 class and we absolutely had an absolute love of everything Jackie French and everything Wombat. And I know that those kids to this day would absolutely still love your your work and your books um, as do I so it was really lovely to hear other people talk about that I know that you've you've done so many books since then but I do want to go back to Dara of a Wombat because it's my personal favorite um, and I could you just tell us a little bit about that because he mothballs your wombat right so can you tell us about this book <laughs> Um, despite the fact that I have written many, many other books, if you write one book about a wombat, they never get you. Forget about it. Um, Mothball was a real wombat. I was on the phone with a friend and saying, what's that noise? Oh, that's a mothball bashing the garbage bin. Oh, that's a mothball eating the doormat. And that's where Diary of a Wombat came from. She was a real wombat. That is a real week in the life of a wombat. But it's also got a subconscious agenda to it it's also the story of two species human and wombat who will never ever really understand each other but nonetheless learn to coexist by the end of the book but writing that book has also taught me so much the year it came out um, I was speaking to a school and they also just had the year 12 boys and year 12 boys they'd just done their exam but they still couldn't leave school for two days because they were boarders um, they really gave them to me just to keep them entertained so I gave them a nice year 12 Mako sort of talk um, any questions can you read us that pointing to Dara anyway they melted they just absolutely melted can you read it again can you read it again? That's great. No one reads enormous 18-year-old males' picture books. Well, I they were the kids in the same class. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, yes. it was in a different city, but my favourite, my absolute favourite Diary of a Wombat story. Um, I got a copy of the Diary of a Wombat in the mail and a letter um, from a Frenchman who had gone to a bookshop and was leafing through books and then he saw Dara Ever Wombat, the French edition and he opened it and he started laughing and the woman who owned the bookshop came up and said, oh, that is my favourite book, you must buy it, you must buy it and he said, I will, I will buy it if you come out to dinner with me and she laughed and she said, all right, all right, I, I will come out to dinner so um, they, they, they got on extremely well and every night they would sit by the fire um, and they would read Diary of a Wombat together. And she called him um, her big French wombat. Oh. And at the end of three months, um, she, he said, oh, it's a good thing wombats are imaginary. I could never, ever live up to them. And she said, but no, 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 wombats are real. They live in Australia. And this is a real wombat. It lives, it lives, it lives with the author. And so he sent me a copy of the book. And he said, would you please write in this book, please marry this man because he will love you for the rest of your life. And I did. And that is how he was going to propose. He was going to give her the, that book with it and a ring in the book. And she said yes. And I still get Christmas cards. Wow. From, and it would only happen in France. Yes. <laughs> 
terrific. I love that. You're having impact everywhere. I just want to thank you so much for joining us. I'd like to know, though, just to, uh, as we finish our interview together today, what is your favourite book? What is your favourite book that you've written? One. And secondly, who who were you reading? Uh, what are your favourite authors as well? And who were you reading when you were growing up? And, and who are you reading? So favourite book that you've written? Can you answer that, I wonder? Uh, and some authors that have had impact on you. Favourite book is an emotive term. I think Goodbye, Mr Hitler is the most important book I've written. In terms of sheer enjoyment... It's the third in the Miss Lily series, The Lily in the Snow, um, which is for young adults and adults. It's the first book where the editor has rung me at 6am, and trust me, Lisa does not do this saying, I loved it, I loved it. Oh, well, um, yes, well, I can't wait till you um, send me the editorial. Don't you change a single word! No, Lisa never says that. And in fact, she relented, and I have, of course, rewritten it considerably. Right. But it is the first time ever Lisa has been so emotional um, about loving the book so much. So look, the Miss Lily books are the most fun to write. That's probably the most important. Diary of a Wombat is probably Mothball was a real wombat and I loved her. And so for me that is, that's always a memorial to a real wombat. The books I loved as a child luckily as a neglected child, no one bothered what I read so I could read anything. And when I was seven, I think my favourite books were all of the Enid Blyton books. Um, Huxley's Brave New World. It wasn't until I reread it as an adult I realised there was any sex in it. Um, and the great dialogues of Socrates and Plato's and Plato's Republic. Um, I probably read the phone book as well. There weren't many books around. And now... I couldn't say what books I love most. There would be at least 50 because it really depends what mood you're in. But I do have a special bookcase and that's my emergency bookcase. If someone I love is in hospital, if there is a bushfire and we have to evacuate, etc., etc., these are my emergency books where I know I can retreat into their universe and it will be a complete and total escape. So... They're not necessarily my favourite books. They're not the books I would read with the greatest enjoyment and fulfilment. But they are definitely the worlds I want to escape into when times are hard. And so, yes, it's a whole bookcase full and it doesn't matter what I choose. Just throw them into the bag and I, and I know I'm right. Mm. Mm. Thank you so much, Jackie, for being here. And, and I think that being an advocate for literacy across Australia and internationally in France. <laughs> and, look, and a few other countries. I think I, I, lost, I lost count, I think, at about 40, wow. um, 40 translations. And often you only know where your book has been translated, where you start getting letters from from the kids um, I know in Palestine for example they didn't know they didn't have a word for wombat so I gather it's now a not kangaroo <laughs> but so look you, you, you never you never know um, exactly where the books are going, are going to turn up and any final words for our for, for ACL teachers and leaders 
there is a magic book for every child and also to everyone can learn to read. I think it is as hardwired into humanity as as language. Um, the love of story is hardwired. Um, a friend's daughter was 36. Now, she can't dress herself. She's got severe developmental problems. But when she was 34, someone decided to teach her to read and succeeded. This girl who cannot dress herself. And now she has got a part-time job. Um, she goes to the post office, she gets the mail, she sorts the mail, and then she gives it to everyone in the office. And she's got this beautiful collection of business suits that she wears to do it. And she is incredibly proud. She cannot dress herself. She cannot shower herself. But she can read and these days we do have the techniques so there is no such thing as a child who is hopeless we simply have to find the key and we need to give them the time and often the time look people often talk about a tireless worker for literacy I've never come across one. Um, everyone I know who cares about kids is incredibly tired most of the time. But you, but, but you keep on going. It either requires that extra burst of adrenaline that you don't quite have but you give anyway, or it requires money. And across Australia, teachers, librarians are already giving that extra unpaid burst of adrenaline um, slightly beyond their capacity to do it. The responsibility of the rest of us, every politician, every human in Australia, every child is our child. To be most deeply human, we have to accept every child is our own. And where there is a budget for education, you simply say, we will give whatever our nation can afford. And that is a heck of a lot more than we are doing now. Thank you for finding and creating um, and, and contributing to so many magic books and what an honour it is to spend time with you today. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thank you.